Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hi, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. Every once in a while, if we're paying attention, the stars align and we find ourselves presented with an opportunity to use all of our being, our passions and skills and entire life experience to build something beautiful that transcends the limitations of our finite personality. My guest for this episode is Andrew Beckham of Beckham Estate Vineyards in Oregon. Andrew makes his wine in Amphora. That in itself isn't unique these days, but what is unique is that Andrew makes the Amphora, which he calls Novum, and he is the only commercial Amphora maker in North America. Chances are, if you're making wine in Amphora in the US, Andrew made them. Yes, this episode is deeply helpful for anyone considering making any alcoholic beverage in Amphora, or just wondering why anyone would use Amphora. But it's also the story of a guy who found himself using all of himself to create a piece of culture that will truly live for generations. I hope you find Andrew's story as inspiring as I do. Enjoy. Andrew, welcome. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. I am really um, surprised. Well, not surprised because it's you know, our, our mutual friend, James Endicott, has definitely talked you up. And, uh, you know, he's mentioned it a couple of times and then he just dropped a few bombs uh, little kernels of things that I, I'll just jump into by way of asking you introductory questions. But I was like, when I heard them, I was like, what? I have to, I definitely have to talk to these guys. <laughs> um, but like, by way of just getting you to talk about yourself, I wanted to ask kind of a, a cheeky question and say, if I, let's say I'm a winemaker, which I am, and I want to start using Amphora uh, in my winemaking, and I want to use locally let's say north america the entirety of north america made amphora uh how many options do i have to get locally made in north america amphora as far as i know one um at least one operation (laughs) myself novum that's making things at any sort of scale um i do believe that i thought too yeah, yeah, I do. I do know there are potters who are trying to make large vessels to be used for fermentation purposes, but I don't know of anyone who's doing it commercially or quite at the same size and scale that that I am here in Oregon. Yeah, and I, I mean, can you talk about some of that size and scale? Uh, what, what what are the vessels that you're making like, sure. and and what's your operation like? Sure. Okay. Um, so I make two different volumes. Um, they are fired terracotta. They're not made with any kind of synthesized material. Um, so it's earthenware that's fired to a very, very specific temperature. Uh, I what make does them... terracotta mean? If I can interrupt you, I apologize. Yeah, so terracotta, what is terracotta is it's a, a type of earthenware uh, that typically has a, a high iron content um, and is very low temperature. Um in its requirements for firing. And when the parameters are, are set correctly in the process, the vessel breathes just slightly, just enough so that the wine or the contents within can interact with the atmosphere beyond. Um, but they don't leak or weep, which is a real feat okay. uh, to accomplish to find this magic sweet spot. So I make them in 
two volumes. Um, they're, they're available at 320 liters and 460 liters. And just to give an idea for the scale, the, the large vessels are uh, made with 950 pounds of wet clay, and they're just under five feet tall after they're fired. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and and if I'm not mistaken, getting understanding how to fire these and make these was quite a process in terms of really dialing in the science behind it, right? The the temperature and time that you take to fire them, the I, I imagine the thickness and everything else that goes into that, you you kind of had to figure that out through probably painful trial and error, I imagine. <laughs> Pain painful would be really an understatement. I think um, you know it's 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 hard. Ceramics is tough. It's not an easy uh, um, endeavor to to be a part of and. You know, we, we are shooting for maybe a 5% failure rate, but at times we can be at 100%. And especially when we're moving into a new scale or a new size of vessel or a new piece of equipment, for example, a new gas kiln, um, there's always a big learning curve involved. Um, oh, wow. So the, the, a few things that are quite unique about the process that I use to form these vessels um, and then the technology piece um, the, the way that I form them, I believe is like no one else in the world. They're formed under rotational compression. So the vessels are being squeezed with a thousand pounds of pressure as they're turning, which makes them seamless pots. And when they, um, are finished, the geometry is absolutely consistent from one vessel to the next, and they have not been made with any joints or seams. Um, typically wow. potters making, Vessels like this for, for winemaking or brewing or distilling would be using a coil and paddle technique where there are cold joints every six or eight or 10 inches. Right. Wow. So it's just one giant piece of clay that's been shaped that that's... way by spinning in pressure. So I, I've seen a video on your website where you you are physically touching the spinning vessel but that's you're not applying a thousand pounds with your hands. So no, I'm not. Some... And and so <laughs> you know the forming process is is actually a proprietary method. So I I haven't okay. really revealed um, okay, how no, that's, the that's methods fine. Are, are generated in any of those videos. But rather you're seeing me finish the surface and do the decorative band, kind of the the dressing piece, or as a potter would say, the trimming of the vessel. Um, so and there's another step that, that happens before, <laughs> before that, that is right. uh, guarded that I don't put out there for public <laughs> consumption. Got it. Okay. That's really cool. I love that. Secrets are great. Um, I mean, you know, around techniques and things like that, that's your, you know, that's the magic. And, um, with a lot, <laughs> a lot of, uh, a lot of what you're, doing with those vessels it, you've had to just figure out yourself anyway i mean a lot of it it must be in in a sense proprietary right you yeah i mean if you're the only yeah. show in the continent then there's not a lot of outside help you can reach out for no and you know and it's been a challenge at times because i really have developed the project entirely in a vacuum in my own bubble um which started with developing the right clay chemistry uh, that had the right characteristics for the scope and scale of the vessels. But then more importantly, how the wines showed after a year of elevage in the containers and 
the first version of clay uh, that we were working with was a, a clay that was very easy to fire that came from the Sacramento Delta region in California. Uh-huh. And we found that that clay had too much imprint on the wines. So we now use a clay that comes from the Southeast United States, well, the, the base material that's very high in silica and incredibly difficult to fire. Um, but it has the right kind of neutrality that we're looking for in the containers um, as we're trying to showcase our place and our site uh, in the wines without external influence or, or things being added to the aromas or flavors of the wines. Well, that's, I mean, yeah. And we'll, I will definitely come back to that. I, before I move from the, the craftsmanship behind the, the vessels, you, you're also sourcing, I mean, so there's a, there's a closure, there's steel closures on the top. Um, and you're sourcing a lot of these materials other than, you know, going to the Southeast of the U S to get your clay. Everything else sounds like it's within a stone's throw of where you live. Is that true? Even, that's even true. Yes. And that's actually very, and... very important to me to keep things local, um, and support local industry. So the two employees that work for me are both, well, one's a current Beaverton High School student. The other was a a kid that I had in the year 2000, who's now, you know, almost 40. Um, And he works, he works full time making the vessels with me and the clay we have blended in, in Portland, just about 30 minutes from here. And the steel fabrication's all done in Newburgh, my hometown. Um, The gaskets are made locally. Um, I have a, a glass blower in Eugene who will make the Da Vinci glass fermentation locks. Um, so I've really, really tried to make sure that this whole operation was, was based here in my local community. Um, That's amazing. with, with the exception of some of the technology pieces. So I have a kiln okay. that I fire in that is made in Amsterdam and it is incredibly sophisticated and really is the key to our success with these vessels. We don't see more than a couple degrees Celsius variation from one area of the kiln to another. And we're able to, um, to fire the vessels with absolute precision. In fact, if we go just three or four degrees Celsius hotter than our magic sweet spot, the vessels become vitreous or glaceous and they're, they're non-porous like a demijohn or essentially like a steel tank. Or if we go just two or three degrees Celsius cooler than the sweet spot, they will leak and weep. So there's a lot of time and energy that goes into not only the, the firing process, time and temperature, um, but also checking levels of dissolved oxygen and levels of water saturation into the clay, um, levels of evaporative consequence. And we have very sophisticated methods to gather the data and then log and um, compile so that we have a, a data set that represents years of work, not just each individual vessel, but all of them cumulatively. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) I I, I mean, it's pretty incredible. I mean, what you, you think, I mean, I, I, I don't know what I thought when I first started thinking about you making M4, but then like when I started hearing you talk about it, I was like, this is amazing. And the, I mean, the body of knowledge that you have really, is unique. I mean, it's uh, the, the expertise that you've gained is, I mean, proprietary doesn't really, you know, say enough. <laughs> it's kind of a, a special kind of mastery. And, and I, I don't know. So I guess I, I'm not just trying to inflate your ego or anything, but 
I, I'm leading to the fact that I something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and and this is a, a, a transitional question because we'll get into the wine now a bit, but wine wine is part of culture and you know i've been thinking a lot about what that means and and agriculture is you know obviously culture is in the word and viticulture the same thing and it's like these the way that we do these things the way that i've grown up thinking about them i think the way that most people think about in this country think about agriculture for example is very it's more like an i don't i don't even know how to put it it's not related to culture is the best way i could say it it's more about a a thing that you do to with an end in mean it's not the end isn't in itself and and i feel like clearly you're made you've you've made an incredible business out of the clay uh and you are crafting things that are functionally useful but they're there is this thing that you're also a potter as an artist you and and i feel like i would just love to hear you talk about that crossover about the fact that you're kind of creating things that now literally are shaping the wine industry in this continent and 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 as well as your own approach to wine and and as well as your own approach to aesthetics and art and so anyway if, if that gives you enough to talk on oh my gosh a little bit. <laughs> i could fill the rest <laughs> of our time together with that question um, well, i'd love go please so go. Uh, I, uh, you I'd know a few thoughts you get you get my brain working here so um i i think that the product is very unique and our, my position is very unique and that the potter is the the winemaker and the winemaker is the potter and I think this really speaks to how informed both of these projects are by each other. And I, you know, I think that that's a pretty unique position to be in because when I trial something in the cellar and I see a consequence of what I've done in the studio, I can reflect on that, make changes in the studio with, with the way I'm forming the vessels or firing them or the materials I'm using, and then apply that to the winemaking the next year and learn from, from both of the operations. And so they're constantly feeding information to each other. And as an, as an artist, um, I've always been concerned with aesthetics. Um, I've always been concerned with, um, the way things look and read and feel. And so a lot of my time that I spend on these vessels is, uh, dealing with aesthetics and, for me, a, a lot of things come back to proportion and ratio, um, the rule of thirds, the golden ratio, Fibonacci sequence, and this all kind of ties into um, our philosophy with farming. Um, and the, these containers have all of this amazing um, kinetic energy in them, and they really amplify what's happening in our vineyard um, and with our winemaking. Um because of these ratios and proportions and their aesthetic beauty, um, they're, they're functional, but they're also quite pretty. And so, you know, I, I think that it's a fun place to be where we can, um, we can showcase our, our place with, um, the vessels that we're using. And I, you know, I know the wines that we're making here have a real sense of home and place as, 
they're made in containers that are made here on the site and the fruits grow in here. And yeah, the aesthetics and, and the function are like totally completely tied together. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about if somebody is interested in using amphora in their winemaking, what should they expect? And, you know, what does it do to the wine? Why do you use it? And, you know, and I'll ask more questions. Once yeah, get going with that. of course, of course. So, you know, f- for for me, what I appreciate so much about these containers and the way they work with the style of wine we're making is their their um, ability to to get to the purity of place and site. And over the years, I've become less and less interested with the imprint or impact that we get from French oak barrels, for example. Um, and having made wines in these containers since 2013, the the consistent remarkable characteristics to, characteristic to me is the purity that they offer. Um, they do um, some things to the wine that are quite unique and quite special, um, but really they aren't providing any kind of external influence or flavor or anything that's being added uh, to what we're trying to achieve. Um, the vessels, because they are earthen um, and they're iron rich, um, and are made of clay offer a mouthfeel um, in the wines that are made in them that is quite unique and quite particular to terracotta. I liken it to um, putting your, your tongue on a wet river rock or a wet stone or a wet brick, perhaps. There's a dusty, chalky, mineral-driven like feel to the mouth. There's a texture that mm-hmm. comes from the clay that is quite uniquely the terracotta, but there isn't a flavor that's being added or imparted. And for us making wines that are sisters, both in clay and in French oak, it's so interesting how different the wine read, the wines read being made in different containers. There's always a sweetness to the palate with the wines that are made in wood. Um, In our case, it's all neutral wood, uh, but we don't see that with the terracotta. What we see is is just an expression of, of purity and um, interesting texture that comes from the clay, but not something that's masking or influencing the wine. And, you know, from a technical standpoint, as a winemaker, these containers have some really interesting characteristics. Because they're clay, they have a negative ionic charge. And we see that when we age wines, when we go through elevage in these containers, um, the negative ionic charge is acting like bentonite would in a, in a container as a fining agent. So it's a step that we don't need to um, execute in order to achieve wines that are quite clarified and stable. Um, So that's a very unique characteristic to the clay. Um, Because they are rough on the inside surface, they will precipitate out a a tremendous amount of tartrates. And the uh, tartrates love growing on the insides of the walls of these vessels. Um, because they're, they're porous and breathe, we find that microflora love living in the containers. And once we've introduced the bacteria we're looking for in our cellar, uh, we have really, really healthy ferments. So here we're uninoculated, um, just sulfur at bottle is the only thing we add to the wines. We often find that the wines go through malic as they're going through the alcoholic conversion, the primary conversion, um, and then I right. guess really interesting to me is, is what happens with the shape of the container. And 
these containers have they're they're based on a ratio on the golden ratio um, and so they capture all of this kinetic energy inside of them they have a pointed bottom and they're elongated and they have a tapered shoulder so we see with ferments on the skins that we have a cap that is always being churned and pushed over and compressed down in and on it uh, in and on itself um, so the vessels produce conditions that really, really limit uh, volatility um, as nothing's drying out and things are always churning and, and, and staying moist and wet. And it's almost like the vessel will do punch downs for you. Uh, we do usually go in um, and move things around by hand, but we're very gentle um, with, with that process. Um, and then wow. when we're fermenting juice in the containers, we'll see uh, a kinetic action that will actually result in a vortex at mid-fermentation. So certainly there's no need to go in and stir um, the lees. The lees are always in a, in a state of turbidity and always suspended. And then when the, the ferment stops, the lees bed extends to the shoulder of the vessel. So we have this remarkably high percentage of, of um, lees to wine contact that we don't see in a barrel where everything oh. settles to the bottom. Um, right. That's a very long-winded <laughs> piece to your answer. No, but, you know, I mean, there's just so much stuff that's so unique about them and special. And then, of course, the sustainability yeah. piece. You know, they're good for generations, not like a barrel that takes a generation to grow the tree and then is used for several years and discarded. And so for us, it's that's another piece that's quite important and ties into our farming. Um, you know, the fact that the vessels it, are it, made of the earth and they will last for four generations. That's what I was going to ask. Okay, wow. That's very cool. In the Black so, Sea region in, in Azerbaijan, Turkey, the Republic of Georgia, they're using vessels there that are hundreds of years old, and, and in fact, some in some cases, quite, quite old, um, as much as a 1,000 years old. And In fact, I was just sent a photograph by a Georgian winemaker about a week and a half ago, um, where he had uh, found a, a quevery in a village that was built in 1909, and the, the vessel was. And he was so happy that he'd found this historic vessel and sent photos of the dating on the rim. And, you know, they, they just are really remarkable containers for so many reasons. Mm. That's cool. Well, it brings up a... I, I mean, all of those things are good data points to think about if you're going to be using these vessels in your own winemaking, but it also brings up some sort of red flags for me. And, you know, if I was like things that I'd want to be careful about, so I wouldn't want to get bad microbes in there essentially. Cause it sounds like, you know, if you get a, if you get the right microbes in great, but if you got something bad in, it would be pretty tough to eradicate or, or, or is it not like how, how difficult is it to get something bad out of there like well. an unwanted microbe <laughs> i mean it would be you'd be in the same position with any organic sort of container um yeah you know the the one the one advantage to being the potter and and winemaker is that here or someone who's close to me i have had people um get really terrible va for example um I mean, the brewers are looking for Brett, so they're they're working in the opposite direction. But it is actually possible <laughs> to put them in the kiln and heat them up to sterility, which is quite amazing because you can, at that point, reset the vessel 
um, to its original oh. condition. Um, however, the more you fire, the more likely things are to to break because of you know for stress and the potential for fracture gotcha. when things are heating and cooling. Um, gotcha. The so you know they're really no different than working with any other sort of winemaking container um, in that you need okay. to be careful okay. with your your hygiene and your protocol. And um, here we are very diligent with the temperature in our cellar. Um, the condition of the fruit when we bring it um, to the crush pad, our process and procedure with the winemaking. Um, we, we try to be very careful with our, our working conditions here to limit um, potential and liability with microbes we don't want. Um, right. You know, to <laughs> full disclosure, you know, we, we're a natural winery and um, you know, I think a lot of times people are, are afraid to talk about Brett and Pediococcus and, and other things that are really in anyone's cellar um, to some degree at some level. And having had um, some scorpion tests done last year, we discovered that we had some um, Brett population in our space that was, you know, was not of a huge problem or consequence yet, but it was enough to get us concerned. And we have been quite careful to isolate those containers and um, we use in our case a 350 degree Fahrenheit high pressure barrel washer and or steam to clean the vessels. Um, so, so they're pretty durable in terms of cleaning. They're very durable. Yeah. Yeah. But again, yeah. you know, we, we've just here, we, we've knocking on wood right now. Um, we've had great success, but I think a lot of it is practice you know, how we, how we manage the space and the containers. Nice. Well, so a couple, couple questions. So if it's, if it, if it's acting like a, a clay, like a bentonite finding clay in to some degree, it, do you, do you worry about color loss or is that just a, you know, a fact of life with clay, uh, with the vet, with that vessel? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. So we can, we can, you know, talk a little bit about some observational characteristics of the wines um, and then tie that to some analytic observation also. So we often see that the wines we made we make in terracotta are a couple shades lighter in pigment. And, you know, for example, on our site, we grow, um, we grow many varietals here, but Pinot Noir is a good example because we make it both in wood and in amphora. So we have fruit that's harvested at the same time, same parameters, really, literally comes in at the same day when the same bins and we split it and we make one of those wines in um, French oak and the other one in amphora. And we see in the wines coming from clay um, that we have a lighter pigment, there's a lighter hue. Um, we also have wines that have less alcohol and typically it's like three tenths to a half point lower um, in alcohol. And that's due to some evaporation and, and wicking, I think, during primary, um, where we're losing some of those sugars and potential alcohol. Um, the vessels are quite unique in that you can move from red to white to red to white with no pigment consequence um, or uptake. So mm -hmm. we can age Malbec or Tanat in them for the wintertime and then make Riesling in them or uh, Vermentino, and we don't have any pigment that's coming from the red wine that's been aged in the containers. In fact, a lot of times we, we wow. think about using them like a cast iron pan. 
um, or skillet that you build the seasoning over <laughs> years. And so we have sets of vessels that we use for particular wines that have had many wines made in them. And then they've developed these particular um, seasoned characteristics based on what's been in them in the past. Um, now, one other thing that's that's of note and quite important making wine in, in Amphora, um, we notice that the wines evolve at a faster rate. In fact, if we look at dissolved oxygen levels in the containers, we typically see somewhere in the neighborhood of two, per, two to 3% more DO in the wines um, that are in Amphora at a one-year duration versus wood. So for that reason, coupled with um, the sensory evaluation of the wines, we bottle our wines made in Amphora at vintage or prior. In fact, our red wines typically go nine or 10 months and then they go to bottle where our wines made in, in French oak uh, will go 14 to 16 months. And we right now in our current tasting flight have a couple of 2019 Amphora wines that are really cohesive and together they're homogenized and they're they're ready earlier on in their evolution. And because they've had a little more oxygen in the front end of their life, they're incredibly long lived and bottle. Um, so that's, you know, that's one thing that's quite different than other containers is um, how they become cohesive earlier on, how these wines are cohesive wow. earlier on in their evolution. They sort of get, get the impact of age right away or much more rapidly. And then they're, they're sort of stabilized at they're, that point. Exactly. Exactly. They, they have more micro walks going on. And, you know, I think winemakers who are using these containers for the first time really need to be aware of that, that particular condition. Um, the other thing that's quite important with, with terracotta and, um, vessels like this that are basic in nature is that they are treated with some kind of solution the first couple of years that they're used. So you don't shift the pH dramatically upward in the wines. Um, so in our case, we fill them with like a 5% or 8% by volume tartaric solution and we'll soak them up for 36 or 48 hours. Um, and then move to the oh, next wow. container. Okay. And that's to take the, the basic edge off of the container um, so it's Got neutralized. It. And that, that needs to be done for the first couple times they're filled, and then after that they're, they're good to just fill up. Nice. So I'm wondering, would they be, because of the, the qualities that you've talked about, would they be good for treating something that maybe – had harsh tannins. Like it sounds like it helps soften tannic impression. Oh man, that's, that is actually tannins. a great question. Um, and the answer is yes. In fact, we often use the analogy here of sea glass. Um, and this is, this is my assistant winemakers analogy. So I got to give Phil Tarako props here, <laughs> but thinking about the way that um, a piece of glass would be very sharp and hard edged and angular when it goes into the ocean. And then over time it's abraded and washed and churned and moved and it comes out soft. And we think a lot of times about what's happening in the containers and especially related to tannins um, with that movement and that washing and that churning um, and, and ultimately the softening and rounding of all of those edges coupled with wow. the, the exposure to wheeze. Um, and we do find that the, the tannins 
from the wines coming from clay um, are are softer than they are in wood, and they're more um, they're more tea like, um, you know, very supple and soft, and not angular and abrasive. So there is a real mm-hmm. definite quality um, in terms of, of tannin and finished tannin um, in the wines and, that we make in the like- Amphora. Seems like time would also be your friend versus oak, where if you know the longer you leave it in oak, you actually might start pulling tannins out of the oak and become more tannic depending on the wine and the oak. But with the M4, it sounds like the longer you go, the softer it could potentially be. It can be, but again, I think people need to be cognizant of the the potential for the evolution of the wine to be accelerated. Um, right. And again, you know, I we we taste things. After we get through month six and seven with our red wines, we start to taste things more frequently, keeping an eye on on the impact, um, what's happening with the tannins and what's happening with the microoxygenation. Wild. So, well, let's talk about your wine then, <laughs> and your let's let's step back and <laughs> let's let's talk about the name of your winery and where you are. Okay, perfect. So <laughs> right now I'm sitting in our cellar, um, which is on top of Parrot Mountain in the Newburgh-Sherwood area, which would be kind of um, the northern end of the Willamette Valley proper where you know most of the grapes are growing in, in the middle part of the state. And we're at about the 600... The Mountains, right? Uh, we're on we're Shehala Mountains, AVA is our, yeah, is our AVA. that's okay. Yeah, Um so we're at about 680 foot elevation here, and we are on a very rocky site that is um, made with uh, or comprom- <laughs> composed of volcanic jory, um, the subtype mm-hmm. being psalm. So it's very red soil that's on top of uh, fractured basalt, and our soils are really shallow, um, maybe 18 to 20 inches, and we're into rock. And because we have this, this exposure on top of Parrot Mountain um, that is every direction, we have a west face, an east face, a south face, a north face. We're kind of on the crown of the hill. Um, we have a lot of wind, <laughs> incredible amount of wind, and a big <laughs> diurnal shift from day to night. So this site tends to produce mm-hmm. wines that have um, better natural acidity than maybe some people that are close to us but have different conditions um, so we, we gotcha. started here with eight and a half acres. Um, we now have 36 acres. And by the end of this month, we should have 20 of those planted. And wow. um, we, we started with Pinot Noir, like everyone else in Oregon. <laughs> um, and <laughs> over time, we get. Yeah, well, we, we decided that we wanted to differentiate ourselves and we will continue making Pinot Noir, but we've actually taken some out and put Riesling in. Um, oh. We have just planted three acres of Gamay Noir um, to the north of us just last week, actually. Um, we right. have what I believe is likely one of the bigger Trousseau Noir plantings in the U.S. We have four acres of Trousseau, and we've vinified the Trousseau for the last couple vintages. And that is a wine that I'm incredibly proud of and um, uh, and excited to share with people because of the amount of time that's gone into the project. It took years to find the budwood and 
to get the vineyard established. And we're, we're really thrilled to be making Trousseau Noir here. We have uh, so how many, many acres of that? Four acres. If I, if I can, four acres. Cause I have to say, I, your, your pride in that is, is deserving, not just for the amount of time and everything, but the, I think I was drinking a glass of that when I, was with James when I was like, I definitely have to call them. <laughs> <'Cause>, oh, cool. <laughs> well, I'm glad you yeah, had them. It was it's beautiful, and it reminds me of. Uh, I mean, it reminded me of what I love about a really good Norella Mascalese or Nebbiolo, where you, you know, or, and sometimes Pinot, where you have this sort of translucent, you know light looking thing that has all this depth like it the depth yeah. i mean the the appearance of it completely belies the depth that it that you get and the complexity that's in it it's it's really those are the special wines for me and it yeah was yeah no and it's interesting you you mentioned that and i i liken it in a lot of ways to nebbiolo for that particular reason also it's very counterintuitive to make it there there have been some producers who've made it in oregon we're not the only people who have it but there aren't many um, and some of the versions have been good and some of them are just very extracted. And mm. I think likely because those producers have made the Trousseau, like they make Pinot Noir or Syrah or other reds. And it's such a tannic, thick-skinned grape. Um, we are typically only going seven or eight days into ferment before we press. And all okay. of that is based on tannin management. And so it's um, in our in our case, um, we are destimming, 100% destimming the fruit, and then we're just going seven or eight days into primary uh, and pressing off, and we're not punching down during that time. We're just moving the fruit around with our hands, so um, none of the berries are broken. Um, we have to be so oh, gentle wow. uh, to make sure that the wine isn't over-extracted, and it's incredible how powerful it is for how light a, a, a color it has. It's it's yeah. quite deceptive. Um, and it, are then, you are you are you fermenting in the in the like, what do you call them amphora? What do you call your vessels? Because I, uh, I I call them novum, which means a new beginning in Latin. Okay. Yeah, new Great. beginning. And I so are you I, fermenting in those? Yes. Yeah, we ferment fermenting and, and aging. Ferment and age. Okay. Yeah. In fact, this year uh we'll do 3000 or 3500 cases of wine and all of it's made in clay and only mm, 300 or 400 cases will see any oak at all which is part of our old brand that has been redesigned uh to fit more in with with all the wines made in Amphora or Novum um so yeah th about 3000 cases purely in clay with no wood at all um, I was going to also mention the other varietals <laughs> we're growing. We, yeah, please, please. Uh, yeah, sorry, I interrupted. No, no, no. So we, I, I mentioned Trousseau and Sauvignon Blanc. Um, we have Alagote. And then we have some Italian stuff we're experimenting with. We have Nebbiolo and Schiapertino, um, both from northern Italy. We have Albana um, and Montuni. And I think in Italy, Montuni is very obscure. There's only seven hectares, I believe. <laughs> Um, and it's really cool. It's How very phenolic and we brought that here to make it on its skin. So we have those four Italian varietals and then we've got this crazy Alsatian German white planting that's going in this later this month with 19 different yeah. whites. 
And I won't be able to, uh, to get them all right now, but I'll name a few. So we have Oxerwash, Rewebe, Riesling, uh, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, Ruander, Sylvaner. Um, then there is, uh, we've got, then it's ex- kind of expanded beyond um, Alsatian varietals. We have Simeon, Simeon Rose, Flora, which is a Gewurz, Simeon Cross, Gewurz Demeanor, Malone de Bragon, mm-hmm. Mueller Turgau. Um, and I'm leaving like seven or eight more out. <laughs> but is Kerner is Kerner one of those? We don't have Kerner. No, that is one okay. we don't have. Oh, we uh, Sauvignon from the Jura, the other the other okay. indigenous varietal. Well, the, the three, the white. Um, so we have Sauvignon. Um, we're yeah. So I think unlike a lot of people in the Willamette Valley and in Oregon, we are trying to move away from Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, and we're really trying to think about the warming climate and how we can grow varietals here without acidulation um, in the winemaking process that are in our house style. We think a lot right. about farming for style, but at this point it's become very difficult to make Pinot Noir without acidulation. We're, we're doing everything we can in the, in the, on the farm to preserve natural acidity, including very limited leaf plucking and hanging more fruit and the use of animals in our farming practice, sheep and not, not tilling the soil and, um, but in hedging only once and really late. Um, but these warm vintages, the only other thing we have left, um, in our toolbox is to pick early. And in 2011, we made Pinot Noir the first week of November and the last four vintages we've started harvesting in August. So that's why I'm looking wow. at, at these other varietals. You know, Nebbiolo, for example, might be fantastic here in another couple years if we keep heading in this alarming trajectory. Right. That's, that, that is a ma- Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I, I follow Oregon pretty closely uh, i mean just it's it's a love of mine for a long time but i'm curious i mean i've uh, since you brought it up i i've heard such wonderful things about the 2017 2018 vintages but from your perspective wonderful might not be the right description is that correct is that how i mean how would you describe those uh, vintages no i mean i love i love these vintages i i just for us to achieve our house style we're working in a different with a different set of objectives than a lot of other people in, in Oregon, you know, we're not really, well, looking, and that, we're not looking at bricks. We're looking at TA right. and pH. And so right. our, our picking decisions are based on totally different parameters. You know, we're not trying to get stuff ripe and then water it back and add acid and all the other stuff. We're, right. we're trying to get it right in the field. Um, right. So what's that, quite, What's he very? That's what unique? I do too, and that's what I was curious about. Like, that, I guess that's what I was trying to say. Like, are those are they are they great vintages because they're warm? Again, is that is it still that association of you know just hot vintages with great vintages because you can get super extraction from big ripe fruit, <laughs> or is that yeah, is that I, what's still happening? Well, yeah, but I, I think you know our wines are really kind of outsiders um if you're looking right at, right exactly i mean and, i guess what i'm saying is like in the trades they're they're being talked up as these great vintages the reality is if you're making it in a natural style they're they're 
just as difficult, if maybe not more difficult than any other vintage, because it, you, you might, if, if you don't want to add acid, then you, you might have a problem because you're getting overly ripe. Is that right? That's true. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely true. And it's quite interesting for us. Well, it's not interesting. It's just the reality of things. When we look at our finished alcohol, for example, in our 17s, 18s, 19s, it's way less than everyone else's. Our 19s we just bottled, we don't have any any Pinot Noir that's over 12. They're all in the 11s. And, wow. you know, you look at our some of our neighbors, um, you know, got a couple people just across the ridge here, 15%. And it's been watered back. Yeah. It's just a style thing. You know, for us, it's we're looking for finesse and and beauty yeah. and I much prefer vintages that are cool and hang long and you know it's it's we just have a different kind of um angle yeah. on things so I'm fine yeah. with low alcohol I love acid in fact <laughs> you know that's really our wines are all about acidity um and that's another interesting thing about the clay some of our wines are like our rosé of pinot noir from last year had a finished ph of three and because it's in the amphora the the texture that comes from the clay bridges that that acidity on the palate and it makes it feel complete i was gonna that's what i was gonna say i i mean honestly i i do i i i want to give you a big compliment i really think your wines are unique in oregon i i i've loved oregon for a long time and i i but i'm still a lot of the time there there is this i want to say like a two dimensionality like it's lacking a sort of mid palette or a a, a a a depth in that in the mid palette and if yours didn't come across as acidic i mean i love that you're saying that you you are driven by acid but it's like I tasted more than just the Trousseau Noir and these tasted very balanced and very, very round. I mean, plush even in some cases. And mm. I, I mean, not in a, not in a cloying way, but just in a really, like I was, it's, it had that added dimension that I feel like is sometimes missing in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a big compliment. Um, oh, well, I, thank you. Thank but, you. <laughs> I, but it, that's great. I, and I, the more that you talk about the M4, I think there's like a real, sort of some magic dust there maybe that is happening with, with those. Um, and there, you know. there absolutely is. And I, I reflect a lot about, or think a lot about the history of man and wine and what vessels humans used. And, you know, in the big picture, the last 7,500 years of man making wine in amphora or man making wine, rather it was made in terracotta. It was made in earthen right. vessels that were fired and it's interesting. There was a, a gentleman here who was, he visited us about a year ago and he was a biochemist and he, he made a comment to me that really threw me for a loop. We tasted the wines and he told me that they, that the wines had a medicinal quality to them. And of course, you know, as a winemaker, I thought, Oh God, like, like Band-Aid, like Brett or something. <laughs> right, um, right. So I asked him, I said, well, what do you mean by medicinal? And he said, the, the human body needs iron. It's one of one of the minerals that the human body needs to be healthy. And that there's a reason that, that man has used clay and particularly terracotta for so long. Um, and it, it's, it can't just be chance. 
that, you know, humans settled on this particular type of clay to carry their waters in, their water in, and then move their food and grains and, and make beverages in. And, um, you know, that, that was really an interesting observation to me that there are probably mm. some like deeper um, and more profound values and rationale behind mankind and terracotta. <laughs> you know, it's, I tell my kids, I yeah. teach high school ceramics, you know, and this is actually my last run. I'm going to be done in June, but I always talk to them about how humans sustain themselves before we had Tupperware and stainless steel. You know, it was Ziploc bags. It was clay pots. <laughs> that's how, right. that's how people lived and made a, yeah. a living. Yeah. The, I, it's funny because it's all, I mean, iron is the, is the essential, I guess, mineral in red blood cells and, you know, you, you get anemic. And so there's some like lifeblood thing that I think we could get from that as well. Like the, that, that earth, I, 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 I trip out on that because it's, it's related to the meaning behind my name. The Hebrew meaning behind my name is tied to red earth and things like that. So I oh. love that. Huh. Um, yeah. It, it it also is tied to mortality and it's, you know, that's, that's, you know, part of the whole thing that you're talking about. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Um, which is great. I, so are you saying you're not going to be, so just let's make that clear. You are a high school teacher as well as all of this other stuff that you're doing. And is this your last year teaching? Have has everything caught up to you too much and it's time to, stop teaching or is that what you're saying that's what exactly what i'm saying i am too okay busy. yeah I've, i'm too yeah. busy now i've this last year i've really been um selling a lot of these containers to brewers and distillers and cider makers so it's it's beyond the wine world and i've been shipping wow. them internationally now and i mean they've gone to new zealand wow. and mexico and canada and um, but I, it's, it's multifaceted. I've been teaching for 21 years. I've been in the same classroom <laughs> at the same school for 21 years. It was the first teaching job that I got. And I've touched about 7,000 kids based on my calculations. And a lot of them, not many, but some of them are potters now and will be for the rest of their lives. So I know I've made a difference. I've made an impact. Um, but this last year teaching ceramics, which is a very experiential thing to learn and often needs to be learned in collaboration with other people, um, you know, to have success together and to fail together and to see someone get it and then pass that nugget on to the next person. All of that has been lost with trying to teach ceramics on Zoom. And yeah. it's been quite disheartening and um, I mean, I, I went two weeks without a single kid talking to me, turning their camera on or putting something in the chat. And as a teacher who's, I know I've been effective. I know I've been able to, to, you know, pull kids into the, the world of Beaverton high school and find success there. That piece is just missing and I can't do it anymore. I'm, I need to focus on my family and, and the winery and vineyard and the Novum um, ceramic business, but I also, I'm mentally just done. I'm spent after this year. And we went back to uh, teaching, um, hybrid, uh, on Thursday. So today was my second day back with kids and it is nicer to have faces, but the faces are covered up and there are only a few of them there. And 
yeah. it's just not the same. It's like a totally somber situation. I've never, I've never seen a high school where no one talks. It's just silent in the halls, silent in the classrooms. You know, well, I know all of us, yeah. when we were all in high school, it was rowdy, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. 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 So no, it's, it's just time shut for up me. was the problem. Yeah, I know. It's time <laughs> for me to exit. Um, while, you know, mm. things are still positive enough, um, I can leave feeling content enough, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's a <laughs> Well, that's a good long stint. I mean, uh, why, why did you, I mean, did teaching happen because you were an artist and it's hard to make a living as an artist just selling your art or, or, or was it a love that you also enjoyed sharing and wanted to teach? Was teaching as much a passion as the art was. Yeah, man, it's been, did it become that? it's the whole, my whole life has been a series of very fortuitous circumstances that have led from one thing to the next, to, to another, to a new chapter. And I've always tried to be one to take advantage of the opportunity when it presents itself. So, you know, in high school, I was a, I was a kid who was a lost soul. I was academically quite capable, but didn't give a crap. And when I was in high school, I skipped school all the time. And I really, the only reason I went was to, to be a part of the ceramics studio and the, the, the ceramics classes I had with old Ben Lortz. And I, I loved pottery. <laughs> As a freshman, I, that's why I went to school. And I played the drums in the marching band. I was a kid who needed to use my hands. And yeah. that was it. That was my hook. And I went to college and majored in history, but I kept taking ceramics classes the whole time. And then I just needed a semester to do a double major. And so I did that. And then I moved to Park City, Utah with two useless majors in ceramics and history. And I was a ski bum for about five years. And it was there <laughs> in Park City that I found a little art uh, gallery at the bottom of Main Street. And they had a studio in the basement and I got a membership and started making pots and started selling them in the gallery store. And then the man who taught the ceramics classes quit. And I went upstairs and I said, I can do this. I was a ceramics major in college. I can teach these classes. And I started teaching the classes there and wanted to get more serious about my life or life earned my master's degree and started teaching ceramics um, at the local high school. And um, along the way, we, we wanted to move to the country to build a pottery shop in the woods. And we found this property that was in a sea of timber and moved here to build a pottery shop and got sidetracked. And I started cutting down trees and planting wine grapes and pulling stumps and <laughs> propagating vines. And, and then I grew grapes for 10 years without making any artwork. And in 2013, my wife showed me an article on Foradori and Haramphora and the Dolomites. And I thought, oh, my God, I can make those. That's what I've been doing my whole life, making big pots, but I never knew why. And so it all, you know, the whole thing ties together. And I guess the teaching piece for me, it's what I love to do. And I needed that so much when I was in school. And to be able to offer that to other young people mm. has been really rewarding for me. You know, and like I said, I, I know I've turned people onto it who are lifetime potters and passionate about the arts. And um, not all of them, but but enough that it's been it's been a, a pretty cool career. 
it's just time for the next chapter. Well, it sounds like Andrea is a pretty um, intuitive and insightful person as well to to have sort of pushed you in a gently in a direction that inspired you and awakened <laughs> you to, to a whole new life too. Um, she knows me so uh, well. She, she was, knows she knows all she's got to do is is plant the seed and then make it feel like it's my <laughs> idea, and then I'm I'm hell bent on it. <laughs> <laughs> she knows how to work it. She just gets me thinking about it and then she makes me feel like it's my idea and then boom, we're rolling. <laughs> and it is true. My Jeez. wife is, she's an equal partner in this business and operation and is, you know, key to, to all, really our, all of our success. Uh, without someone to market and sell and organize the wine club and run the tasting room and, you know, we would just be making wine and... <laughs> <laughs> have a pile of <laughs> pile of product here so yeah she she does a fantastic job well and people can uh can come taste right if they want to come you have a tasting room and you guys are back open now in oregon we are we they've just kind of restricted things again um but we're still oh. we're still open right now um in oregon we we can't have groups of larger than six people and they're not all supposed okay. to be from the same or they're supposed to be from different households um, and not commingled. But uh, you know, yeah, we're we're by appointment only. Um, we do have a tasting room here. Um, it's really a, an incredibly cool place to visit because you can taste the wines. Uh, we do a lot of the tastings in the cellar where you can see the pots and touch the vessels and smell the aromas in the cellar with the clay and the, the wines fermenting and aging and. And then th we've also got the studio here, which we like to, to um, share with people if they're interested. So, you know, you can get a real sense of the place and, and the people that are a part of the project when you visit us. And we try to um, spend a lot of time educating people that come here to taste. Not that everyone needs a lot of information thrown at them, but tasting wines from Amphora, from, from Novum, um, is a very different experience. And I think it requires explanation for people to really understand the concept of the project and to, to understand why uh, it's unique and, and important. Um, so our tastings are, are a little longer than, than some and full of a lot of information that's very valuable. Yeah, I love that. I, I'm, I getting I'm getting that sense <laughs> right now. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And when you come here I, to taste, you you typically taste with our assistant winemaker or my wife, uh, and then I do the studio piece. Um, so they're they're more like uh, polished professionals <laughs> than myself <laughs> dealing with people in the hospitality piece. I'm a little rough around the edges. <laughs> oh, I, that's no. I think you seem. Smooth. You seem pretty smooth. Um, what, what, so you went from eight acres to thirty some acres. What, what is that land like, and and what are you doing with? How, how are you caring for it? What's I, I heard you mention animals and no till. What, what's going on? Yeah. Okay. So we've been organic here since 2013, and we do use biodynamic um, principles in our in our winemaking and with our farming. We do apply 500 and 501, and we think a lot about um, the calendar and especially with some of our wines that are 
that are really long macerations. We do a Pinot Gris that is one year on the skins. And often we wow. see these cycles of, of uh, development of particularly tannins um, where we'll, we'll build a stringency and it'll, the wine will be very bitter and, and then it'll fall out and the tannins will polymerize and things will, will um, homogenize. And we come to a point where the wine is really beautiful and then it'll go away again in another loop and it'll, it'll start to become astringent and tannin and bitter and we got to ride it out. And often those cyclical movements um, from an observational standpoint are tied to the calendar, to the biodynamic calendar. Um, so we do, uh, we do use animals in our farming practice. We have a, a flock of baby doll sheep that we graze through the vineyard. Um, we have beehives and chickens that are free range um, that seem to shit all over everywhere. We don't want them to yeah. be. Um, yeah, <laughs> we've got those. <laughs> yeah. We have set aside um, about eight acres as a riparian zone. Um, that's not okay. fenced, that is just purely native, um, native habitat. And that's really important for oh. us to preserve the, some of the natural um, habitat here for animals. Um, we've signed the Willamette Valley Oak Accord. So the oak trees that we have on our property are registered. Um, and at least under our stewardship or ownership, they will never be cut down. In fact, we've signed a legal pact uh, to make sure that they're preserved. Um, no-till with the exception full disclosure here we did till every other row this year it's been seven years because we have a massive um explosion of rodents in the in the vineyard and the field mice are like out of control and so we're trying to knock part of their habitat back um yeah so we we tilled really early on it was it's been about eight weeks and it's already reseeded and regrowing with a native seed Um, but that, you know, that's not something we typically do. So we really are trying to make sure we're, we're preserving, um, and enhancing the property. Regenerative agriculture is really what we're trying to achieve and no irrigation. So all of the vines that we're planting this year and all of the vines we've ever planted, they've never been irrigated. Um, so we're not, you know, drawing water table down and, um, a lot of these so things even, also even, get back to winemaking style. <clears throat> so, do you have to water them to establish them, or is, we do? Or, or, okay, but we then do, yes, we but we don't. We don't run irrigation line. We hand water typically four or five times the first year the vines are growing, and that's usually substantially enough that gets them through right, with everything else. Got yeah. It. That's great. It's amazing to come here and see this site in August or the beginning of September when we haven't had rain in forever. It's lush and green and the vines will find water. They'll, they'll go until they find the source. Um, so it's, yeah, all dry farmed. I, I will mention this too, um, since I, I hit on the end of the last year, like many other producers in Oregon, we were uh, dramatically affected by the wildfires here. And um, I'm afraid that what's yeah, been yeah. quite common in California is soon to be a reality here consistently. Um, for us, we made no red wine. Well, we made, take that back. We made one lot of red wine, our Trousseau Noir, that we were so fortunate to harvest the day that the wildfires started because they were young vines. Um, but all of the other wines um, were so affected by smoke that they were disposed of. 
So we went from 3,000 uh, cases to only 300. Um, uh, what heartbreak. Yeah, it's really tough. And on, on our small scale, you know, we didn't have crop insurance. And it's expensive. All of the, the hand labor to do this organic farming, to stay on top of everything. Uh, it was just really, you know, hard to swallow and heartbreaking to have, you know, no no product for the year. Um, oh, man. So, I mean, I... I I, I don't I don't mean to make light of this in any way, but I I, I guess I, I guess just to highlight some other people how difficult it must be. You you have the fortune of of having this other venture, uh, you know, in terms of the the Novum yes. production. Did that, and I can't imagine like if if you're trying to be a farmer and that's your main thing, like I mean, that, that that's like a you know, career ender. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And then couple that with COVID, you know? Yeah. Um, so we're, we're super fortunate in that our model has been direct to consumer sales. So we do have some distribution, you know, James does a fantastic job um, in the markets <laughs> that he represents us in, in New York and in, in California. Um, and we do have some distribution in Tokyo and Ontario and, Vancouver, BC, Quebec, um, Chicago, some some other cities um, nationwide, and a little bit more overseas. But really, our model has been DTC, and we have a large wine club, so we were not very affected by on-premise sales um, and how you know how a lot of wineries who are more dependent on distribution really had a challenging year yeah. because the on-premise yeah. sales were so down. Um, so yeah, I'm fortunate that I've got this other business that we, you know, had this other kind of sales model. Um, and we tried to take this opportunity to, to focus on what we could focus on rather than dwell on what we couldn't fix. So we spent a lot of energy upgrading our winery space. We did a tongue and groove ceiling and finally sheetrocked and painted and put glass roll up doors in got new windows and, you know, tried to, tried to work on our hospitality piece. So when people come here, they have as, as nice of experiences as we can possibly offer. That sounds great. Well, <laughs> hopefully that will be soon. <laughs> hopefully, uh, I'm going to be there soon, hopefully. Um, well, this is great. I, I mean, I think there's a ton that we could talk about, but, uh, in interest of time, what let's, I, I don't know that we've said what what is the name of your winery oh man yeah right that's that's funny we left all that out so the name of the winery is beckham estate vineyard um and we we have um two brands that are part of our label we have 80 beckham which is those are my initials andrew dow beckham um and those are wines that we make with sourced or purchased fruit and then we have the beckham estate um, label, which this year we, we've redesigned, um, the two labels so that they look the same. Um, there's an amphora on, on both of the labels as all of the wines are made in amphora now or Novum. Um, so Beckham Estate Vineyard, um, you can get us at, um, at Novum Ceramics on Instagram, um, at Beckham Estate Vineyard on Instagram. Um, or you could dig us up on the internet. Um, and yeah, we're, we're always willing and happy to 
um, host people to, to visit. And um, like I did mention, we, we are by appointment only, but um, we're open, you know, most of the week. So we can accommodate people if they're interested in visiting. Well, that's great. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. I mean, it's a really special thing that you've got going there. And uh, I mean, I hope everybody has come to realize that who's listening to this. And it's really great to talk to you about it. I, I It's a whole... Uh, it's a whole culture that you're building and it's, it's really beautiful. So wow. thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And any, any winemakers who are listening in to the conversation um, are encouraged to, to give me a shout and I'm happy to talk about what I, what I know and have seen. And um, I'm also happy to get people in touch with other, others who have used um, my vessels and, um, yeah, I'm I'm eager to get them more out of my own orbit here in, in Oregon. I you know I want to <laughs> continue uh, moving them out of my uh, uh, immediate domain um, for various reasons. Um, but yeah, I'm I love talking about making wine and clay and making vessels and um, yeah, anyone who'd like to to have a further conversation is welcome to reach out. That's great. All right. Is there a way that they should reach out to you just through the website? Uh, yeah, the website will link to me or Andrew at NovumCeramics.com. And my Novum Ceramics website should be up sometime next week. You know, it's one of those things where I've been so busy <laughs> and I've, I've everything has just grown organically. And I started to realize that we're, there were people who are trying to reach me who can't get a hold of me. So we made a website. Well, I didn't. I had someone make it, which we should have done three years ago. But I, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do. Really hard to get, I guess. (laughs) And um, I I guess here is one last thought. If if anyone is interested in using one of these vessels, um, they do take about three months for me to produce. So I'm kind of getting close to the tail end of what I would be able to produce to accommodate for vintage 2021. Um, Got it. Yeah, but not impossible yet. Um, we're just starting to run up against the end of the, the operational the prices window. are just getting higher. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, right? I, yeah. If you need one late, the price is higher. That's a good. <laughs> that's good. I like it. Um, well, cool. I, um, I'll just end by saying thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. And I, I really enjoyed getting to know you and what you're doing better and learning about these vessels and, and definitely see a place for them in the future in, in my winemaking. So I'm, I'm excited. It's really cool. Well, thank really you, Adam. Yeah, that's, that was really, it was really fun to talk and thanks for reaching out. Hey, Here's my here's my final question for you. How, when you are starting class with a brand new slate of students for the past 20 years, how do you get their attention and get them engaged from the beginning? Like, did you have any tricks or techniques, or did did you have a did you have a shtick, or did you just uh, jump right in and no no give, I do have give a them something to do with their hands? Okay, it's so you, what do you important, do? man. The hook. If you don't get the hook sunk into them in the first 10 minutes. Your toast. You, it can yeah. ruin the whole school year. It's all about the first, especially the first class period. So, yep. and this is where it's been so hard with Zoom. So my my typical MO is to use humor. 
And, okay. you know, I, I do a lot of like demonstration where it, it looks just like magic to watch someone who's a professional potter make something, you know, it's mesmerizing. Mm, and then I'll have the kids right. try in front of each other and they'll fail. And I've, I've done it long enough. I'm able to feel like 99% of the situations and make them funny. And so that's the way I hook them. I hook them by showing off a little bit, (laughs) you know, Mm, uh, making sure they understand who the expert is. Um, Right. And that sometimes includes showing them little bits of stuff off the internet or videos or, uh, but it's more me demonstrating and then humor. And unfortunately, as I've got older, the other, the other connection piece has been lost. Um, But when I was a younger teacher, it was music. Because so often, uh, you know, the kids, they're so into music. And when I was in my early 20s, I listened to the same music as they did. And now, right. not so much. Now, I everything is abrasive to me except West Coast, <laughs> Bay Area, gangster rap, and jazz. <laughs> so, like, I'm very particular about the genres I enjoy. Uh so that doesn't work so well. I play the jazz channel and they, it's, you know, to them, it sounds like elevator music. Um, so yeah, humor and, and expertise, I think are the ways that I get them. Hooked. It. But man, the tone, Did you have any like, jokes? yeah, I've got like the, the typical kind of dad jokes, um, <laughs> okay. you know, that are funny still. But, you know, if you have a bad, with high school kids, if you have a bad first class session, you may not recover from that for the whole semester. Um, right. It's just the vibe is, the vibe is determined at the beginning. Mm-hmm.